SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome to SciShow Tangents. It's the lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green. And joining me this week, as always, is science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. And also our resident everyman, Sam Schultz. Hello. I was listening to SciShow Tangents in the car on the way to school with my son this morning. Mm. Now, oftentimes we walk, but not when it's negative two. (laughs) And he was really enjoying it because it was the butts episode, which... Was an absolute blast for him. Anytime you say the word butt, he thinks that that is the height of, like, it does <laughs> oh. not require any butt humor around it. It's just the existence of butts. So he's having a great time. In fact, we dropped him off and he was like, can you pause it and we'll finish when I get home? Oh, it's a five-year-old. I my love heart. Him so and, but right before I, we dropped him off, it was the advertisement for Preply, mm-hmm. which Sam did. Lovely job. Thank you. Um, and... Uh, in that advertisement, several times the phrase "private tutor" is uttered, <laughs> which Oren thought is the best, funniest thing he'd ever heard. Even funnier than butts. Funnier than butts. Like, he has to, he, like, tutor. like Sam would say, "private tutor," and Oren would go, "private tutor." <laughs> and I'm like, "Where did you? Why do you even know that's funny?" It's pretty good. He's developing a very good sense of humor. Um, so. <laughs> 
I'm a little bit frustrated that I I did not realize that the phrase private tutor was funny until I was well into my 30s, yeah. I feel like. I, I didn't know until you just said it. It's got tutor right in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's a person who toots only privately. <laughs> there are those people exist. We got to get him on our show. Oren, yeah, he is hilarious. I'm looking forward to him doing a little work on the project for Awesome. Though this episode oh. will come out after, after that. that, so hopefully he he did uh, charm the crowds and raise a bunch of money during the project for Awesome. Ooh. Oren got canceled, unfortunately, during the project. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for both of you. Are you private tutors? I mean, if we're talking about farting in front of people, yeah. I would never fart in front of anyone or poop in a public bathroom. So, oh, that's that super. Kind of private. Wow, that's a. I guess he's. We have a private tutor here. Are you? You? I could count tutor. on two hands how many times I've pooped in a public bathroom at least. Wow, but, it's only through in extreme circumstances. Oh yeah, gotta be real bad. What's what's the toot the home toot situation then, Sam? Me. Oh, yeah. I don't really, honestly, I'm not, I don't toot that often. You're not I'll a tutor. Him, I'll let them go at home though. You know, okay. whenever they're, whenever they're available. Sarah, are you a private tutor? Yeah, I think if we consider the home bubble uh, private, then yes, I'm a private tutor right. also. Mm-hmm. Inside the home bubble, you're a pretty public tutor. And inside the home <laughs> bubble, pretty public tutor. In... You kind of gotta be, you can't, you yeah. can't really hold yeah. it. You can't some hide people, it. Are, yeah, some people really aren't, even, even around their family, they... They're very private tutors. Now, around my like parents, I don't know. I don't feel. I don't feel like it's okay to tutor around my parents. Uh, I agree. No, it's like household only because yeah. you're forced to live with me, and so then yeah, you're you forced no to deal choice. with my parts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have to continue on with our episode because every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts while also trying to stay on topic. Our panelists are playing for glory and for Hank Bucks, which I will be awarding as we play. And at the end of the episode, one of them will be crowned the winner. Now, as always, we introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem this week from Sam. I can't help but wonder if Venus, where it just scooted a smidge away from the sun's ultraviolet meanness, could we pay it a visit today? How much closer till clouds of acid became fluffy and marshmallow white? Could the surface be lush and placid instead of causing your skin to ignite? Could Venusian critters scamper in vast fields of alien blossoms? And could we travel in space-born campers to see sights exotic and awesome? But alas, Venus is where it is. It's not a great place to vacation. If you went there, your eyeballs would fizz and your lungs melt upon inhalation. So please keep in mind all the while, as Venus's harshness we discussed, give or take a few million miles that easily could have been us. Wow. Wow. (laughs) We're getting better at this. I was this time I was actually like, I'm gonna write a poem. I know how to do that. The first time in three years or whatever, how long we've been doing this that I thought that. <laughs> You're like, I, I, I know how to I know how to crank out a great <laughs> Venusian fairy rhyme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sari, what is what is Venus? Well you <laughs> I feel like this one's pretty I think they've pretty, got a specific answer for once. Yeah. Specific <laughs> answer. Yeah. Uh it's it's a planet and it's the second planet mm-hmm. from the from the sun in our solar system. It's Mercury, then Venus, then us. A lot of Sam's poem summed it up. It has a thick, toxic atmosphere, toxic to us at least, that is filled with carbon dioxide and sulfuric acid. And uh, it's actually hotter. It's the hottest 
planet or world in our solar system, even though Mercury is closer to the sun, just because it's got mm-hmm. such a big atmosphere, right? Is that why? Yeah, the atmosphere yeah, holds on to that heat. Holds on to the heat. Yes, uh, it's like specifically an atmosphere with compounds in it that trap heat really well. If it was a little bit closer to Earth, w- uh, could you live there? <laughs> I don't think so. Like, there's no, and and Hank can correct me if I'm wrong. I I don't think there's any particular like it would still be kind of like a toxic mess if mm-hmm. it was yeah. slightly farther if, from the sun. If if we grabbed onto it and yanked it into Earth's orbit now, it would still be a toxic mess. Dang. But potentially if it hap- like if the same planet with the same geology and geochemistry happened much farther from the sun, yeah. it would be a very different place. I I but I am not enough of a exogeologist to have any idea the the ways in which it would be different. I was just reading about it and I was thinking, dang, we we're so close. Feels like we we're so close to having a little friend. I gotta say, it would be so cool to have a friend. Yeah. <laughs> that close. It'd be by. so cool yeah. yeah to to be in a in a in a solar system with two habitable planets. Totally possible. Probably happened to a lot of aliens where they were like looked up in the sky and they were like, oh my gosh. That one's got swimming pools. We should go visit. (laughs) Should go see our neighbors. (laughs) Venus was the first planet to be explored by a spacecraft. I think NASA's Mariner 2 uh, flew by Venus on December 14th, 1962. And so, like, what if it flew by and then someone waved back and was like, what up? (laughs) (laughs) That'd be so exciting. Our whole history would be different. It's like, oh, we send a spacecraft out and then there's a guy there. I feel like we'd be mean to them. I had hope not. But. Well, the nice thing is they're pretty far away. It'd be hard to be mean for a while. I guess that's true. <laughs> we'd just be rubbing our hands like, I can't wait to go be mean to them. <laughs> but, but, at the, but at the moment, we really don't know how to do that. Other weird things about Venus is that it has uh, what's called retrograde or backwards rotation relative to the Earth mm-hmm. um, and most of the planets in our solar system. And we're not entirely sure why. We think it may have flipped on its axis at some point or like slowed down and stopped and then started rotating the other direction. What just because. Yeah. And another weird thing, I had to like triple check that I read these numbers right. A day on Venus lasts longer than a year, which is very brain bendy and like time yeah. make time feel fake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it takes it just spins real just, slow. Yeah, it spins so freaking slow that but it it's takes not, longer. It's not like a day is a year, like it, it, if it was like Mercury is, where yeah. it's tidally locked. A day yeah. is uh, a little more than two hundred forty three oh. Earth days, and a year on Venus is only about two hundred twenty four Earth days. That's so close. We are very confused about a lot of things. Uranus spin on its side, rolls around the sun. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Venus spin backward, but real slow. Why? <laughs> some probably big smack. Probably happened some kind of big smack. It's kind of the only thing going on up there, right? Just smack. Mostly, just yeah, all big smacking. Smacks. Yeah, yeah. It's not like there's some. It's not like there's like somebody who could decide to make a planet go faster or slower. Oh, says uh, less. It's a simulation then that's exactly the kind of thing that we'd be doing, you know? I would do that. (laughs) Gotta keep them guessing. Yeah. You would be pushing, like, the plus and minus speed buttons just to freak Uh people out. You gotta make the moon the exact same size as the sun in the sky, just by complete coincidence, just so that the eclipses look really cool. You gotta save your game first, just in case you destroy all life in the universe. Then you reload, and you say, I won't do that again. I know. I always save before I do something big. Yeah. 
I, yeah, I know how to. I know how to be a, uh, a, a omniscient god. <laughs> Great. Is there? Do we know anything about the origin of the word Venus aside from the fact that it is a goddess? Yes. Well, it is a goddess. Uh, the, <laughs> which I'm only going to pronounce like that, <laughs> as though I'm forgetting uh, the gender of the, of the Roman goddess. Yeah. yeah, Venus is the Roman goddess of love and beauty. And I think Venus was a word before it was applied to the goddess. Oh, I'm not hmm. sure. There's a lowercase v- Venus in the etymology dictionary that I look at, which means like love or loveliness or beauty or charm. And that's from the Proto-Indo-European root, W-E-N, which I think hmm. is when, but maybe ven, because I, when you sure. get Germanic, then W's or V's, mm-hmm. everything's mixed up. So the word might have been weenus for a while? <laughs> That's fun. Uh huh. Could have been, Sam. Could have been. (laughs) When it it means to desire or strive for. And and so that is tied to words like wean, like you're weaning off of something because it's desirable, Hmm. or win, or wish. But it's also tied to things like venom, which I think is interesting. So, as far as I can tell, venom used to be applied to like a a drug or a love potion or like charm or seduction mm. before it was like toxin. Um, so that's, that's kind of fun. Cool. I mean, that was fascinating. And also it led to the wonderful situation of Venus possibly being originally Venus. And we could, we can go ahead and say that like Venus is the hottest planet. <laughs> Venus is, it rotates backward. Venus has very long days. And also all words that start with V-E-N should, ha- should start with ween. Wenum. So you've got weenimus, weengence, weenereal disease, <laughs> weenereal disease, great, <laughs> weentriloquists. <laughs> All right, what are we doing? We're making sideshow tangents. That means that it, it's probably time for us to move on to the quiz portion of our show. This is going to be the tangents, weenus. So do the moon and the stars shape our fates? No, but they can still have a tremendous influence on our lives, as exhibited by the transit of Venus, the rare moment when Earth, Venus, and the Sun line up and we can see Venus traveling as a black dot across the Sun. And these transits come up in pairs, like our most recent pair in 2004 and 2012. But these pairs are spaced super far apart. The next transit of Venus isn't slated to occur until 2117 and 2125. I guess we're going to call that 2125 when we get there. Would we get there when someone gets there? When Orin gets won't there, be maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> the following are three stories of how the transit of Venus has impacted people, but only one of those facts is true. You're going to have to tell me which one it is. I'm going to stop saying Venus now because as funny as it is, You're eventually we've got to save it for later. Yeah. <laughs> Fact number one. Bad math. During the 1639 transit of Venus, a group of German astronomers worked together to follow the transit from different locations in an attempt to improve navigation for ships. However, due to a notation error, their calculations ended up being off, and several expeditions that used their results ended up lost. Oh, no. Or it could be fact number two, colonizing Australia. For the 1769 transit of Venus, a British expedition was sent to Tahiti to build an observatory and track Venus's movement across the sun. And after the transit was done, the expedition explored the area more, coming across Australia in the process and claiming it for the King of England. 
Or fact number three, murder. For the 1874 transit of Venus, two American astronomers from the Transit of Venus Commission found themselves in competition with each other to decide who would be sent to an observatory in Nagasaki to photograph the transit. To ensure that he would join the expedition, one of the astronomers killed the other one. So which is it? Is it bad math leading to lost expeditions, colonizing Australia because we went to Tahiti to do a Venus thing, or Venetian murder for good science because I want to be the one to go? Which one is it? Wow. It's one of those, which is wild. Mm -hmm. I feel like I read little snippets of all of these because I had to read every single damn thing about Venus to find a freaking fact. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm very confused. Mm. Yeah, I I remember reading about a guy who went to go observe the transit of Venus around Tahiti or Australia, and then he missed it, and then he stayed longer, and by the time he went back to England, his wife remarried, his estate got sold, (laughs) they just thought he was dead, because none of his letters made it back somehow, and so I feel like... That's what I read, too. I feel like this one is made out of, all three of these are made out of that one. (laughs) So I don't know what the hell to do. <laughs> there was there was also a murder, and there was uh-huh. there was also a bunch of lost expeditions. Yeah, the twists and turns of it. Humans are so wild uh-huh. that any of these could be true, especially old scientists. When to be a scientist, you mostly just had to be rich and a vagabond. <laughs> uh, yeah. You could just go around and do do whatever to try and make a discovery. So I'm going to say though. I'm going to narrow it down through pure guess and say I'm going to guess the stars, the navigation Mm. one, because I feel like Venus is so bright in the sky. Of course, we would use it for navigation. Yeah, that seems like the easiest answer. Mm -hmm. But it's so boring. I want it to be (laughs) one of the other ones. (laughs) I don't think it could be the murder one. I feel like I would have seen that. I I want it to be the Australia one, so I'm going to go with that one. And I am excited to tell you both that On June 3rd, 1769, Captain James Cook and the rest of the Endeavour expedition observed the transit of Venus, the stated purpose of their journey. I cannot believe I didn't know this. The goal was to collect the timing of how long it took Venus to cross the sun and their data when combined with measurements collected in other parts of the world would help define how far Venus is from the Earth, which would help astronomers calculate the size of the solar system. However... This is amazing that we that this is how we learn all these things. Cook's mission was not entirely astronomical. He also had a secret set of instructions from the British Admiralty to see if there was a giant continent in the South Pacific <laughs> that could wow. be seized for the King of Britain. <laughs> Scientists in the 18th century thought there must be some kind of large landmass in the South to balance out the large mass in the Northern Hemisphere. Oh my they God. were wrong about that, <laughs> but they were right that something was there. Absolutely wild. <laughs> Cork, Cook did not find the large continent expected by those scientists, but he did land on the coast of Australia and decided, yeah, that's ours, uh, leading to the European colonization of Australia. And while the expedition was able to record the transit of Venus, their measurements were impacted by the black drop effect, which is a sort of fuzziness around Venus when it's observed near the edge of the sun, which makes it hard to accurately measure the start and end time of the transit. Technology since then has made it easier to, to see past that effect, but basically they didn't get the data that they wanted to figure out the size of the solar system very effectively. But they did get Australia. Wow. <laughs> get in quotes. They did. Yeah. <laughs> they did yeah. say, this but is they mine did, now. They did steal Australia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So, so uh, I wasn't able to lure either of you in with the tale of murder, and indeed there has been no murder. Uh, but there are there were lots of examples of people being sent out on research teams specifically for Venus transits, but nobody got so so enthralled with that that they decided to do a murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this, but uh, the fact number one that Sari went with is fascinating. Um, the 1639 transit of Venus is considered to be one of the first scientifically recorded transits, thanks in part to Johannes Kepler. Kepler's work on the elliptical orbits of the planet led to him publishing the Rudolphine tables, which were tables of the locations of the sun, earth, and a bunch of planets. And they were, uh, they were the, basically the information needed to predict a Venus transit that was going to happen in 1631 and in 1639. However, Kepler was like, I'm going to, I'm almost there. It's 1630. And my tables say that it's going to happen next year. And then he up and died. Oh, no. However, two British astronomers, uh, Jeremiah Horrocks and William Crabtree, studied his tables and realized that another transit was coming up in 1639. So they missed the first one because he died. But then the 1639 one, uh, they got the information. So they set up the, to record the transit from separate locations in the United Kingdom. And from Crabtree's location, about 40 minutes uh, of the five to six hour transit would have been visible, though it would have been fully visible in America. So while astronomers would become interested in tracking the transit of Venus to improve navigation, I, d- I don't think anyone used these the measurements to to do any actual navigation, and it definitely didn't lead to lost ships. Poor Kepler. Yeah. Man, the lives we lead. Well, he got a lot done. Besides, <laughs> it's like kind of sad that he was probably really looking forward to this and being like, yeah. I want to know if my tables are right. And then died. Oh, man. You know, you just got to you got to think to yourself, like the moment when you're like, am I going to die before this freaking thing happens? I do think that way about video games pretty frequently. I play this <laughs> video game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel that way about a lot of book series where I'm like. I, is the author going to die or am I going to die? Who's going to die? And I'm not going to get a copy <laughs> of this thing. Oh, well, congratulations, Sam, on getting the correct answer. And now it's time to head off onto the break and then it'll be time for the fact off. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, You think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Factor, whose ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Stress is stressful. I don't like it. (laughs) Life just goes and goes, and it doesn't ever stop going. There's always something else to do. And one of those things 
is a very important thing called eating dinner. To eat dinner, one must pick out what they want to eat and then go to the grocery store and then buy the stuff and then chop the stuff and do other things to the stuff. You have to heat the stuff and put it in water. And then afterwards, you have to take the things that you heated it in and they're gross and you have to make them clean again. Meanwhile, life is still happening. That all, all that's building up around you. Oh, this is like, terrifying. I'm so, <laughs> I never want to cook again. <laughs> You're right. Factor ad. I don't, I don't want to have this happen. This is unacceptable. Sometimes, uh, parentheses, all the time, uh, you just don't have the time or the energy for meal planning on top of everything else going on in your life. So thankfully, Factor is here to help. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon come mealtime. You can get chef-crafted meals that are better for you and better tasting than takeout delivered right to your door. Ready to heat and ready to eat. No prep, no mess, no sink full of dishes, no stress. We're kicking stress out the door in 2024, and I certainly hope that's true for me. <laughs> Heck yeah, Factor. Kick my stress. Right out the door. <laughs> I'm going to get a chest freezer just for these meals. <laughs> oh, you're going to need one because they have over 35 meals to choose from. Flexible ordering options, add-ons, smoothies. Factor offers all sorts of fast, simple solutions when you're too busy to cook. Banish your stress, even if it's just for like one hour while you're eating dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash tangents50 and use code tangents50 to get 50% off. That's code tangents50 at factormeals.com slash tangents50 to get 50% off. Welcome back! Everybody get ready for the Fact Off. Our panelists have all brought science facts to present to me in an attempt to blow my mind. After they have presented their facts, I will judge them and award Hank Bucks to the fact that I think will make the best TikTok video. But to decide who goes first, I have a trivia question. Humans have been launching spacecraft toward Venus since 1961. If you include all planned flybys, orbits, landings, and probes, we've had Venus in our sights 50 times. However, they were not all successful attempts. Some of them have been, like a spacecraft in the Soviet Venera family in 1970 that was the first in history to land on another planet and successfully return data back to Earth. It told us about Venus's temperature and pressure and wind. Which Venera mission, though, was the first to return data after landing? on another planet. I think I know this because oh, I researched oh. it for the science. Well, not <laughs> this particularly. I researched images of Venus for the science mm-hmm. couch, uh, but I have not scrolled down to my notes section. Uh, so it okay. is based on my knowledge <laughs> from Actual a week knowledge, ago. Actual knowledge, you've written down. Not yeah. Okay. Test, yeah. <laughs> but I'll let Sam guess first and then I'll guess. Uh, and I don't know. Wow, okay. I don't know, five. That sounds like a good... It's a great guess. Yeah. yeah. I think it's Eight? Well, fortunately for Sari, eight is closer to seven than five oh. is, but only just. <laughs> I have a horrible memory. <laughs> this is why I take notes. Uh, it was, it was Venera 7, and, uh, and boy, Venus missions are tricky ones, but I'm excited to hear. I won't get into it because I don't know what you're about to tell me. So, Sari, would you like to go first and tell us your fact, or do you want Sam to do it? Oh, I'll I'll share my fact because it has with, to do with the theme theme of the episode thus far, which is Venus, Venus from Earth. Yeah, oh, it's, okay. from, it's from <laughs> Venus, in fact. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> 
So even though objects in our solar system can seem so far away and relegated to the study of people with fancy telescopes, Venus is actually one of five planets that you can just look up and see, and it can actually get pretty bright. So a lot of the science history about Venus that gets retold, at least in English language information sources, is about missions from space agencies, how European astronomers made estimates about our solar system, or even how the name originated in Roman mythology, all of which we've talked about this episode thus far. But it's not like... Other humans just didn't notice or think about Venus. <laughs> in fact, Good observations point. of Venus played a key part in early Mesoamerican forms of timekeeping. I'm sure there are oral traditions and other indigenous ways of knowing that carry on this knowledge, which is a whole other can of science history worms to unpack. But to keep it simple for this podcast, one collection of written documents that have survived colonization and time are the Mayan codices. For a while, only three were authenticated by scientists and archaeologists and named for the cities where they're being held in Europe, the Paris Codex, the Madrid Codex, and the Dresden Codex. But then there's a fourth codex, a weird sibling that surfaced in a private collection in the 1960s, so also looted, Ooh. which is not surprising. It's not a lot to look at. It's just 10 pages of an estimated 20 total on pounded bark paper that have been pretty waterlogged and ripped up. The calculations and illustrations have a rougher style than the other three, and for decades, many anthropologists were wary that it was a forgery, so others dug deeper. And in a collaborative study with scientists from multiple institutions and the National Institute for Anthropology and History in Mexico, what's now known as the Maya Codex of Mexico, or MCM for short, was authenticated just in 2018. So it was authenticated by radiocarbon dating, which as far as I can tell, wasn't effective or possible with the others. I think it might have to do with the coatings that were used with them, like the, the painted coatings to preserve the texts, but also maybe the materials they were made out of. And we think that the MCM was created between... 1021 and 1154 CE, making it the oldest legible pre-Hispanic manuscript in the American continent. And its Venus tables and mathematical notations were a huge part of this authentication process. The anthropologists argue that maybe the MCM, while a little rough around the edges, was more of a shorthand to help share the scientific and cultural significance of Venus across different Mesoamerican groups mm. and provide notes for what you should see in the night sky across several generations. It's a time capsule of Mayan mathematics, the bars and dots and numerical groupings that vary a little bit between texts, as well as that place and time on Earth relative to Venus. After all, the Maya peoples were and are not a monolith, so it's cool how the MCM deepens our understanding of their understanding of Venus, and my hope as we continue to untangle the threads of science history is that we keep exploring how people across the world were all like looking up at the night sky and making calculations. Super cool. I'm looking at it, and of course... I understand nothing. Weirdly, I did a bunch of research on Mayan numerals for my book. but So I understand some of that part, oddly enough. <laughs> but I uh, do want someone to explain it to me. I want like the, the, like some person who knows the most about this thing to get on a podcast with me and be like, and just tell me. Because I, like, I look at this and I'm not like, that must be about Venus. Is it this thing with all the, the guys drawn on it? Mm -hmm. Some guys drawn on it, yeah. What yeah. are the guys doing, huh? Those are all like different Mayan deities. So anthropologists think that they linked particular gods, like different cultures linked different gods to different cycles of Venus. Mm -hmm. And like the, the gods that they linked to those cycles often reflected like the cultural understanding of the time. So like in the MCM uh. codex, everything has to do with like a lot of war and destruction because it was in the time of colonization and like uh. things were very scary there. 
So I think a lot of the gods that are depicted there are more like destructive oriented, whereas in like the Dresden Codex, which is much longer, it's like 78 pages or something and like a much more elaborate book with a lot more like explained out calculations as opposed to the shorthand of the MCM, then like the gods are more varied and are drawn in like a more beautiful style, according mm. to anthropologists. They got some nicer guys. Yeah, they got some nicer <laughs> guys in there because they were less stressed out about the world, right. maybe. And they could, and, and they were basically projecting like where Venus would be in future, in many future years and mm-hmm. other yeah. astronomy things. For like a century, I think, mm. out. And so I think the meaning of why they were planning and how they used the book was kind of up in the air. And this is where they think that some codices were used to like predict what was happening and map out cultural events. And this one was more, their guess is that it was more like a reference text. So less predicting and more like, okay, we can kind of know what time of year it is based on like what it was in the past and just kind of like capturing that um, as opposed to we're going to try and predict way far ahead what's going to come and when when the world is going to change and in what way. Fascinating. Sam, can you beat the the secret fourth codex? So everyone's always talking about Mars. Like, oh, was there life on Mars? Oh, wow, there's water and stuff on Mars. <laughs> Maybe this dirt has old dead microbes in it. Wow. But if you're looking for some good potential extraterrestrial mysteries, you might want to take a look at a little planet called Venus. So in September 2020, a paper came out. And if you're a fan of SciShow Space on YouTube, you might remember this, uh, revealing that phosphine gas had been found via spectroscopic images in the atmosphere of Venus. Uh, Phosphine is a nasty, poisonous gas that can be made in non-organic ways. Like I think it comes out of volcanoes or something. But there seemed Mm -hmm. to be so much of it on Venus in Venus's atmosphere that the simplest explanation was that it was created via biological process possibly by microscopic living things in Venus's clouds, which, as I mentioned, I think at some point before, are in large part made of sulfuric acid. So this wasn't sold by the authors of the paper as like proof of alien life on Venus, uh, just that that was like one of the more logical explanations was that why Mm -hmm. there was so much phosphine. Mm -hmm. Then a few months later, another paper came out from another team who ran some simulations based on the original team's data and found that the radio waves from the that the first team used to discover the phosphine were also absorbed by sulfur dioxide. So the conclusion of that paper was that the whole phosphine thing was a mistake and that there was possibly not even any phosphine on Venus at all, thus no life. (laughs) Uh, SciShow Space also talked about that. But what SciShow Space didn't report on was a paper from late 2021 with yet another weird Venus atmosphere mystery. So researchers have been noticing for decades a few weird things about Venus's atmosphere. For one, there's a lot of water vapor and oxygen in it that they couldn't really explain. And also the higher up in Venus's atmosphere you got, the less acidic the clouds got. Uh, According Hmm. to one researcher, it went from being like battery acid to being like stomach acid. So the leading theory for that for a long time was that, and maybe still is, I don't know, was that minerals from the surface were being swept up in big wind storms into the clouds and neutralizing the acid. But in 2021, the paper proposed an alternate explanation that also took into account uh, another anomalous, anomalous, anomalous substance in Venus's atmosphere. The ammonia that Venus probes have been detecting in the atmosphere since the 70s and that researchers also hadn't really been able to explain. So ammonia would neutralize the sulfuric acid in the clouds 
and, and that chemical reaction would explain some of the other weird stuff like the oxygen. And the new research also concluded that the amount of dust required for the cloud acid neutralization would be like super astronomical. So they proposed another simple solution that the ammonia uh, was being created by cloud-borne microscopic organisms in order <laughs> to make the nasty acid clouds that they live in more livable, like how some bacteria that live in digest digestive tracts create ammonia to deacidify de their surroundings. So like the phosphine paper before it, the researchers aren't pointing to this as proof of life, just that ammonia producing life is one of the maybe more plausible explanations for what's going on up there. Uh, and luckily, we might not have to wait very long to find out because MIT is planning, it's Sarah's people, maybe Sarah planned this mission. I don't know. <laughs> no, <laughs> is planning to launch a privately funded three part mission called the Venus Life Finder mission in 2023 that will drop some laser shooting devices and balloons through Venus's clouds to try to figure out what the heck's going on up there. If there's ammonia, if there's phosphine. And then they'll also attempt to return with a sample of Venus's atmosphere to Earth. And maybe there'll be little guys in there and we and we'll finally get to wave to them. It does seem a little fishy to me that they were like phosphine must be life and there was like actually no phosphine. That's not a thing and they were like, well, <laughs> well it was different ammonia guys. and oxygen it was must different be life. Those different people. <laughs> we <laughs> weird acid gradients must be <laughs> life. Like, the ammonia at least we know is up there. I really do. I would I would love for there to be life on Venus. I don't see any reason why there wouldn't be. Look, it's got energy. It's got well, I see some reasons why there wouldn't be. <laughs> well, yeah. It wouldn't be like fun, exciting life we get to go hang out with. It would just yeah. be some little... I remember the, the paper being like, so they turn into spores and they get really hardy when they go down and then they come back. Yeah. And I was like, oh, all this stuff could work as long as there was like a, a way for it to get started, which, hey, we don't even know how it happened on Earth. So what what do we know? Yeah. But I I like it. And I especially like this this news about this, this sample return mission. And whatever they're doing with lasers, I'm super into that too. They're shooting some lasers down there. It's going to bounce off some stuff and they'll be like, there, that's that. Mm. And that's that. <laughs> that's how they're going to bully the little microbes. They're going to shoot lasers yeah. at them and mm. be like, ha ha, you got yeah. zapped. Well, no, all of Venus, they're just going to be shooting. They're going to be like, we're from Earth where things don't suck. Laser, laser. <laughs> Gosh, well, I have to choose a winner for the episode. I'll say this, Sam. You made it hard for me to make a TikTok about this because I uh, because I I am always so scared to expose yeah. the children to ideas that they're going to misinterpret. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's fine. <laughs> I'll take the L just so that people aren't like, "Wow, Hank said there's life up there," because there's no one saying there's life up there. They're just saying they can't yeah. eliminate that possibility yet. And Sari, I really liked your introduction about how uh, how we, of course, always imagine astronomy through a very one perspective lens. So I'm gonna give, I'm gonna award you the win. But can you overcome Sam's previous advantage? And I don't know the answer to that question. So in order for me to settle it once and for all, oh. I'm gonna oh. ask you another question. And that question is this one: What is the hottest temperature? On Venus. Oh no! Uh, In a Fahrenheit, just to, just to mess with few. you. Well, that's good for me. Nine hundred sixty yeah. Fahrenheit is nine hundred and sixty. We have one vote in for nine hundred and sixty Fahrenheit. Will Sam Schultz counter with a number that is more correct than nine hundred and sixty degrees Fahrenheit? One thousand. 
Fahrenheit. Oh my Sarah God. is the winner of the episode. The answer is 880 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, baby. Or 400. You could have gone above or below. <laughs> That's 471 Celsius for our non-American slash wherever else Fahrenheit is used, friends. And that means that it's time to ask the science couch. We've got some listener questions for our virtual couch of finely honed scientific minds. This question comes from at Denkonova, who asks, When was the first time the orange surface was observed under the clouds? Who was the first to do it? When did people start thinking maybe the white stuff is atmosphere and not ground? That's a great point. I love looking a little bit deeper back and saying, like, there's all this stuff that we know now. But of course, we didn't initially know that. We were looking at that, and when you're looking at it, you think that's probably what the planet looks like. It's fuzzy fuzzy white color, maybe a little yellow. And then you get closer and you're like, oh, I guess the main thing when you realize it's atmosphere is when it changes frequently. But I don't know to what extent we can tell that. I couldn't find a solid answer to when we figured out it was atmosphere and not ground. There was a Mm -hmm. lot of misconceptions about planets, like the whole Martian canals and whatnot, as we were looking up at the sky and being like, what are those weird shadows? And I think somewhere between that and actually sending things into space, we were like, maybe other planets have atmospheres <laughs> and, <laughs> and like are cloudy in addition to the ground. So I can pinpoint a, a date where someone was like, ah, atmosphere. But we do know when we first observed the ground. Yes. And this is why yeah. I knew things about the Venera mission, because it was the former Soviet Union landers were the first to observe the surface of Venus and the first to observe the surface of any planet in the solar system. They beat out the U.S. observing Mars by about nine months. The first photo ever taken from the surface of another planet, which was Venus, was Venera 9 on October 22nd, 1975. And a lot of the Venera missions, they sent up in twos. So, and, and this is to my best knowledge, They would send up probes, so one landed, and then the next landed about three days later. So the second could act as like a a signal booster for the first one to help send data back because the temperature and surface pressure were so intense that Venus melted and crushed the landers within like a couple hours. So you could you had this very short window of sending atmospheric and service data. And so in order to like really make sure it got back to Earth, they they sort of like tethered the communication systems of, of two landers one after another. But I think still the second lander was able to send send things back. So I don't know how much it helped. But so Venera 9 was the first close-up photograph of the planet's surface. But as far as I can tell, it was a black and white photo, presumably because the like the transmission of digital images at that point, they were just taking mm-hmm. in brightness and like using brightness to generate the image and out of black and white where like you can either go from like brightest white to darkest black. And so you get like mm-hmm. a texture of the surface of Venus and the rockiness, but not necessarily the color. Then in December 1978, Venera 11 and 12 landed on Venus. They sent back data on the atmosphere, but their, like, lens caps didn't pop off, basically. (laughs) So they tried to take pictures, didn't work. The instruments didn't work. A poopy time for everyone. (laughs) But then in March 1982, that's where, like, the, the flashy images came. There were color panoramas combining red filter, green filter, and blue filter images. So basically, instead of just taking brightness, there were 
three separate images taken, well, four if you count just brightness, but like with a red filter, with a green filter, with a blue filter. Mm-hmm. And the way that they do that is they like take brightness data with the filter on and that gives them like a RGB hex code basically of like how much red is in the picture, how much green is mm-hmm. in the picture, how much blue, and they combine them all. And that gave like the weird orangey otherworldly color that we know of. So March 1982, I guess, is when we <laughs> when we observed the orange surface. And then since then, it's just been like bits and pieces. NASA's Magellan mission was in 1989. It produced the first like high resolution global m- map of Venus, but every image from Magellan is false colored, so it's also just inputting brightness. In 2016, Japan and and JAXA sent out a mission to gather infrared images after orbiting around Venus. And now the Parker Solar Probe, which is technically a mission to image the sun, but it's doing flybys of Venus along its way to adjust its orbit. As of February 9th, 2022, so just a couple weeks ago, sent back its first visible images or visible light images of Venus, which I thought was cool. Mm. So the the wide field imager for Parker Solar Probe or WHISPER, they were just like, what happens if we point this towards Venus? And instead of using (laughs) it to observe like solar storms, which is what it was designed to do, like what if we just see what it can take in off of the light off of Venus? and it revealed a faint glow from the surface that shows like distinctive regions that match up with the topographical maps we've created, but also kind of like a luminescent ring of of the atmosphere and and like oxygen in the atmosphere, which mm. is pretty cool. That is so recent of just like we just took some some fresh off the presses pictures of Venus. Yeah, it's, it's, this is a, these are wild pictures because it is clear. One thing that is clear to me from looking at these is that. This is not a probe that was designed to take pictures of Venus. <laughs> <laughs> what a, and also just like how we kind of like did Venus a bunch and we were like, actually, that's too that's too tough and maybe not that interesting. But it would be so like the universe to be like, no, no life on Mars. But turns out Venus all about those little microbes. Mm-hmm. Bring on, bring back some of that stuff from the surface and uh, hopefully don't really find out that they can eat your flesh or something. (laughs) That was the word about that a little bit, too. (laughs) Bring your vacuum up there, but then come back and let them out in uh, some kind of Tupperware or something so that Yeah, you gotta keep them in a Tupperware. You have to have that patented burp. Yeah. (laughs) If you want to ask the Science Couch your question, follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week, or you can join the SciShowTangents Patreon and ask us on our Discord. Thank you to at DeejDart at Ooblil and everybody else who asked us a question for this episode. That's what it says, right? Uh, I oh, guess yeah. so. Those are yeah, just great exactly. sounds that came out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> if you like this show and you want to help us out, it's really easy to do that. You can go to patreon.com slash scishowtangents. There, you can become a patron. You can get access to things like our newsletter and our bonus episodes, which are very fun and totally not logical. Second, <laughs> you can leave us a review wherever you listen. That's very helpful, and it lets us know what you like about the show. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell, tell people, people about, about us. us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari 
Riley. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Sam Schultz, who edits a lot of these episodes along with Seth Glicksman. Our story editor is Alex Billow. Our social media organizer is Paolo Garcia Prieto. Our editorial assistants are Debogi Chakravarty and Emma Douster. Our sound design is by Joseph Tunamedish. Our executive producers are Caitlin Hoffmeister and me, Hank Green. And we couldn't make any of this, of course, without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. Roman mythology had a lot of different deities. For instance, they were so freaking proud of their sewer system that they had a goddess of the great drain named Cloacina, who we think was named after the Latin word for sewer, cloaca, or purify, cloare. If the Romans' butts were too powerful and their poops too gnarly, they sought her help to unclog the pipes. But For some long-forgotten reason, some Romans merged this goddess with Venus, the goddess of beauty and love, creating a shrine of Venus Cloacina, where you presumably worshipped when you wanted a hot (laughs) wife and a regular poop. So I guess we can think of our sister planet as Venus for short, or Venus, but now in my heart of hearts, she will be Venus Cloacina, the beautiful sewer of the solar system. This is the thing. We never appreciate the people who actually add value. It's only the flashy ones with all the drama. <laughs> yeah. We're fo- so focused on Hera and Hercules and Athena is stabbing each other a bunch. Cloacine is out here making shit work. Yeah, people aren't going to war every day. They were sitting on the dang <laughs> toilet hoping that something was going to get squeezed out. <laughs>